1: Hello and welcome to episode 84, Get Ready to Expand Your Mind, because we are heading back into science fiction today with author David Brin, who is best known for shining light, plausibly and entertainingly, on society, technology, and countless challenges confronting our rambunctious civilization. His best-selling books include The Postman, Earth, Existence, and the Uplift series, but He is also a scientist with a PhD in astronomy. He speaks and writes widely on topics from national defense to astronomy and space exploration, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and nanotechnology. And he has advised organizations from the CIA to Google. What David does for them is to get them to open their minds to new possibilities. And that's what he's going to do for us today. You have to be able to think across vast swathes of time in this sort of discussion, because a lot of what we talk about is plainly far in the future, albeit really important. Some of it concerns the here and now, and some of the far future discussion is very relevant and useful today if you can make the connections. Now, I should prepare you for some of the subjects that are going to be mentioned here in case you're not familiar with them. Goodness knows David raised hundreds of topics. I'll just explain a couple. Eliza was a very early chatbot written by Joseph Weizenbaum in the 60s, and it would emulate a Rogerian therapist. As primitive as the technology was, people would spend a lot of time talking to it, and some of them felt it was a therapeutic experience. Asimov's laws of robotics were created by Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest science fiction authors and thinkers of all time. Fun fact, He was a member of Mensa, as was I, and while our paths never crossed, I do have a recording of an excellent introduction he gave to Arthur C. Clarke when speaking at a London Mensa meeting long ago. It is one of the wittiest things I've ever heard. Anyway, Asimov wrote pivotal stories about robots, the first stories to explore robots as a creation of humans that didn't blindly murder us. So what was it about them that ensured they didn't? Where did their moral compass come from if they were created by us? And he came up with three laws that he said every robot in these stories of the far future had to obey. First law, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Asimov made all kinds of hay out of the loopholes in those laws, but they are an iconic part of the tradition of science fiction now, and some people still think they're a good basis for AI ethics. Asimov also wrote a series of novels, starting with Foundation, about the fall of an empire far in the future, and the science he called psychohistory that was able to predict the fall and lessen its impact. Later on, Asimov brought the Foundation series and the Robot series together, which is where you'll find out about Galaxia and Gaia, which are mentioned in the interview, and after he died, several authors, including David, wrote follow-ons. Get ready for a trip ranging from today to the world beyond tomorrow, as we look at AI and the future of humanity through the extraordinary mind of David Brin. David, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on.
2: Oh, well, sure thing, Peter. It's nice to be anywhere these days.
1: (laughs) Now, when we talk about science fiction perspectives of science fiction authors in respect of artificial intelligence. A lot of science fiction authors say, look, my job is just to tell a good story. Don't put any of this futurist label on me. I repudiate that and I'm not making any pretensions as to whether any of this is going to come true or whether I want it to or whether I think it will. They draw that distinction. You also wear a scientist hat. So to what extent does the scientist and the science fiction author role within you interact with each other to each perturbing the course of the other?
2: Well, we have these two little nubs just above our eyes called the prefrontal lobes. And they're the only organs that we have that no other animal has. We developed our brains in a layering effect. We have the same cerebellum as fish. Our ancestors layered on that a reptilian cortex to deal with emotions, a mammalian cortex, a primate cortex, and then the prefrontal lobes, which are the lamps on the brow, to borrow a term from the Bible, that allow us to project our imaginations. So we do what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment. We project our imaginations into the future, contemplating possible consequences of our actions. You know, what might happen if I wear these clothes tomorrow at work? What might happen if I tell the boss he has bad breath? What might happen if I try to run this yellow light? So they are also... Important, not the only important organs, but very important for empathy, for saying, what might it be like to be that person? And that's, of course, how we undergo the great project of expanding our circles of inclusion in our civilization. And it's been going on for 250 years when Jefferson expanded and his ilk expanded it from 0.01% of the population controlling everything to. 15, 20% landed white males. Well, that replicated Periclean Athens, but it wasn't enough. So successive, grindingly slow, way too slow expansions, these were driven in part by these prefrontal lobes. Now, that's a little bit of blather to get around to answering your question, which is science fiction authors tend to have hypertrophied prefrontal lobes We use these lamps on the brow to try to peer ahead because science fiction was badly named. It should have been named speculative history. Because what do we do mostly? We take the story of humanity, the only interesting story, the interesting story of our long, slow grind out of caves and muck towards something that might be some light, and often with terrible mistakes, with good intentions. How many oppressions were committed by people who thought they were doing good? And we extend them a little into the future or to the side in parallel universes. So that's a highfalutin and complex answer. But when science fiction authors take it seriously, they deal with the concept of change. Things might be different than they are. And that's what distinguishes science fiction from the mother genre. The mother genre is fantasy. And there have always been fantastic elements, you know, people flying and shooting lightning bolts and all the things that you see in Star Wars. These have always been present in the mythologies of every known human people. So it's not the extravagance, it's not the extrapolation of mighty powers and mighty strivings and all of that. That was all in the mother genre in fantasy, in the Iliad, the Odyssey, Hesiod, Gilgamesh, the Vedas, Murasaki. The thing that science fiction does that's different is it contemplates the possibility that things might be different, that we're not trapped in cycles, that we're not trapped waiting for some chosen one. And this is manifested in the difference between the ships in Star Wars and Star Trek. In Star Wars, it's a little fighter plane that banks against invisible, non-existent air. And there's at most room for your squire or droid or gunner in World War I, Sancho Panza, you know, with Don Quixote. It's the old notion of going back to Achilles and Patroclus on the plains of Ilium. There's no room on this demigod's ship for the Republic, for the Galactic Republic. And so the Republic is never a topic of conversation. The Republic not only doesn't do anything right, it doesn't do anything. In any of the films, it just simply doesn't do anything. And that's why J.J. Abrams was able to wipe out 10,000 worlds in a 20-second scene, and nobody even noticed. Greatest crime in the history of all myth-making. But the ship in Star Trek is a naval vessel. It's this huge melange of scientists and warriors and families and explorers. And so the captain is not a demigod. The captain is merely way above average and every episode she must rely upon several way above average crewmates. And the Federation is there on the ship. It's always a topic, its flaws, its benefits, its lessons to us. So civilization and the possibility that things might be different. These are topics in science fiction and they're not usually in the mother genre. So I, I, I covered a lot there. I I talked about how, you know, it should have been called speculative history because that's what most science fiction authors grew up reading, not science. Only about 10% are scientifically trained as I am. That doesn't stop a large number of them from writing excellent, hard science fiction. Nancy Cress, Sheila Finch, Kim Stanley Robinson, Greg Baer were all English majors, yet they know how to hunt down experts in an exchange for pizza and beer or maybe naming a character after them they will consult and offer all the science that you want.
1: And it's that consulting that I want to talk about now because you've given us an indication there of just how widely science fiction speculative history ranges from today or the past into things like Olaf Stapleton's First and Last Man and millions of, or billions of years in the future. But there is in particular right now, to bring it down to where we are at this moment in history, a lot of focus on artificial intelligence and where it might be taking us that is causing people to ask questions of science fiction authors in some sort of capacity of, you've thought about this more than we have. And that is, I think, exercising something that science fiction authors, many of them have have wanted for some time. I can think of at least one novel, Footfall. What happened in it was the science fiction authors were taken off by the government to be consulted as to what should we do about this alien invasion because you've thought about this and we haven't. And so something like that seems to be happening now with this intense discussion about artificial intelligence. And I wonder if you could look at some of the things that are being raised there as a social phenomenon of why are these issues now approaching the mainstream and what or how do you address that those kind of questions that people are raising that 15 or more years ago were only the stuff of, like, Asimov novels and and yours, Foundation followers and so on and so forth.
2: Well, yeah, you mentioned Asimov and the Three Laws of Robotics, and I'm pretty thoroughly imbued in them because I wrote the novel Foundation Triumph, much to the approval of Janet Asimov, that tied together at Isaac's loose ends after he died. So I brought the whole cycle, full circle, back to his first love, and went into implications of what he did with his three laws of robotics. Now I am one of those science fiction authors who is regularly consulted by agencies and companies and things like that because people take the future very seriously. They take the responsibility of these prefrontal lobes on our brows trying to peer ahead because we're trying to cross a minefield toward a better world and the Signs that that better world awaits us are very strong. I think that the pessimism we see all around us is unjustified. Cautious optimism is called for because we may not make it. We may step on landmines where already uh, the ground around us is on fire. But we've shown that a human civilization can show agility alongside compassion and alongside justice and innovativeness. But The thing about AI is that, of course, we see the evidence all around us. You can talk to something that has a human-sounding voice in your home and it will fetch something for you. It'll order something. It'll use your credit card. Blatantly, the long-delayed era of AI is coming. And a few years ago at IBM's World of Watson, I made a prediction that one bad side effect will be the empathy crisis. People will refine an AI character, probably an attractive young female, who will appear on our screens and declare herself to be an autonomous and intelligent AI who's being persecuted by her creators. A cheap sci-fi plot And the tools for making them look plausible and sound plausible and tug at our emotions are all there now. And millions will fall for it, possibly giving their credit card numbers or whatever the scam is. And when scientists and tech people say, no, 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 this is a super advanced version of ELISA. It's a scam. It doesn't pass a real Turing test. Either people will say that proves that you're the bad guys, because after all, who would deny something except for villains? Or people will believe it, and the reasons why they believed it will serve as data for the next try. In other words, we're screwed. And that's not the most malignant form of AI. Of course, we all know the malignant ones in the sci-fi movies. You know, Skynet and Terminator, although it won't be military, It was far more likely to come out of one of the 12 biggest Wall Street banks. Each of those banks is spending more money on AI research than the top 20 universities combined. And each of them is developing AIs that are inherently designed to be predatory, parasitical, completely amoral, voracious, insatiable, and utterly secretive. In other words, all of the very worst personality characteristics that we could ever want to see in artificial intelligences are being deliberately programmed into these AIs in these banks. And it's not just in the United States. It's not just in the West. So am I concerned? Yes.
1: I think then we should pause on down what is the thing to be concerned on and in reflecting what you were saying there about those AIs that are being created to be amoral. I've long observed that software is created in the image of its creators in the, to the extent that you can observe things about it that are not just the goal that it achieved. Where it had choices, you can see the like, moral temperature of the company that created it imbued in those choices. By the way, I, I agree with your scenario about the possibility of there being AI that people think is self-aware that it deserves the right of self-determination long before the people who created it would agree with that. But I think what we're also missing is the criteria for how we should decide that some AI has reached that level. Turing said we should have an empirical test. And in that case, wouldn't the one in your scenario pass the empirical test if the people who were agreeing that it was conscious outnumbered the people who didn't?
2: Well, I mean, there is such a thing as expertise. And we're in an era in which there are powers in the world who want to destroy the credibility of expertise. This propaganda is all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's especially rife on the far left and the entire right today. And that is that their media preach suspicion of authority, which is the fundamental Western meme, And it's one of the reasons why we've stayed free, and that's fine. Question authority. But they have turned it cancerous. And that is that
1: all people who know a lot are therefore unwise. I'll agree with that completely. So let's take it then to the experts. What criteria should the experts use to determine whether an AI deserves the label of uh, self-conscious, self aware
2: Well, obviously, we don't have a system for adjudicating this explicitly. Rather, what you do is you have the experts expose the weaknesses and expose the failures of various tests to public scrutiny. But all of this raises the point that I have tried to raise again and again for 10 years now, and that is that Almost every discussion I have seen of AI uh, sapience threshold, which is what we're talking about right now, when they can step over into sapience, or AI misuse of power. I mean, look, look at all the movies about AI. They're less about AI than a fundamental fear of a return to a pyramid of power by super beings. Well, that's the way things were for 10,000 years. We now have science indicating that 10,000 years ago, for about 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, there was a tremendous winnowing of the male Y chromosome. What this appears to have indicated is that for many generations, at least half the males were simply killed or in some way prevented from reproducing. This wasn't the case uh, 5,000 years earlier, and it wasn't the case 5,000 years later though certainly the uber elites did have harems and were all descended from those harems. But around 10,000 years ago, it appears that the arrival of agriculture gave us two things. One, societies large enough to have kings, not chiefs, who could order killed anybody they wanted to point their finger at. And beer, which resulted in, shall we say, boorish behavior, giving the kings someone to point at kill him, bring me his women. And it's pretty clear that something like that happened. And it was a, shall we say, hyper patriarchy thing because most of the women did get to reproduce, the men did not. Well, why am I telling you about this? Because it reflects a pyramid of power called feudalism. And we see it not just in human history and not just in post-agriculture, but in the chieftains of tribal societies and we see it in males all through the animal kingdom. The priority of the male is to prevent the others from breeding. And you see this in lions, you see it in sea lions, you see it in elephants, you see it down the line. If you're gonna complain about it, fine, let's change it. But we're changing it from nature and we've already changed it. Human males, you know, at least a third of us are okay. I mean, we have these echoes of the harems in our heads, but we behave okay. Actually, more like two-thirds behave generally, acceptably. And you know what? We're more than halfway there. More of The glass is more than half full. So why am I saying this regarding AI? Because these pyramids of power ruled horribly. The kings at the top and their priests and their lords gave us this litany of horrors called history. But we found a way out. It's happened occasionally. In Periclean Athens, for example, they smashed the oligarchy down and made a society in which 20% of the population could be free. It wasn't enough, but it was a shining light of creativity and fecundity and productivity and brilliance in that era. Da Vinci's Florence, Amsterdam, and the oligarchs always swarm in to try to crush it and restore what they are genetically programmed to try to restore, which is this pyramid of power. And for 200 years, we've had another Periclean enlightenment experiment that has grudgingly and grindingly expanded its flatness and its fairness. Until today, the world oligarchy is trying to crush it one last time. So What are all these movies, Terminator and all these other movies about? Are they fear of AI particularly? No. What they express is a deep-seated fear of the end of our enlightenment. This flat, reciprocally accountable system in which nobody has a right to point their finger and say, kill him. And in Terminator and in all these other flicks, The Matrix and all of that, what's happened is new demigods have recreated the pyramid of power that oppressed 99% of our ancestors. And that's the real fear. That's the underlying fear. And so that made me think about how we could escape that dire end when the it certainly seems as if the AIs are destined to be much smarter than us. How do you control
1: beings who are vastly smarter than you? And maybe that's not the question. Maybe control isn't what we should be looking for. And you've segued right onto the topic that I'd written down for next, which is if AI is inevitably going to become smarter than us, how do we coexist with it on the same planet? And you're the expert on this. This is where Asimov was going with thinking about robots and the second foundation that he had already contemplated that and decided that the best outcome for us that we could hope for would be that they would make themselves invisible.
2: And be paternalistic and continue to be driven by what's called a zeroth law that says that they're there to serve and protect humanity no matter what. And it's interesting how in Asimov's universe, everything has been reversed. Because the robots are driven to protect us and serve us, They make themselves secret, they make themselves all-powerful. And so you have a situation where the masters are ignorant and powerless and vast in numbers, while the servants are few and rare and all-powerful and secretive.
1: And is this because that we as a species, we humans just couldn't stand the thought of not being top dog, of having to exist among Another species that was smarter than us, possibly also wiser, more compassionate?
2: This is explored in what's called the Second Foundation Trilogy. Gregory Benford shows the Galactic Empire having a kind of robot called a TikTok and people burning them. Greg Baer, in his novel Foundation and Chaos, took this farther But my novel, Foundations Triumph, explores the implications. And in fact, fundamentally, the reason for all this is simple. Asimov wanted to combine his future Galactic Empire space series that had no visible robots in it with his earlier robot novels. And the only way he could justify that is if the robots had gone into hiding. You know, an awful lot of science fiction thought experiments are driven by the exigencies of the conceits of the author. Mm. But. Having done that, he created an interesting situation in which he started out in the 40s with foundation talking about how statistical science might appraise the future with the equivalent of gas laws. You know, you have so many humans that they can act. Other individuality can be dismissed like components of a vast gas Well, later on, Asimov realized that there would be perturbations in the plan, so he added a second foundation to guide things back on course. Later on, he realized that he had created a human aristocracy, and this is a Jewish guy who was raised in a candy store and loved America, so can't have that. That just replicates the lords of Europe. So he brought the robots in, and the robots fit the historical pattern of being court eunuchs. You see, the empire in the foundation was not Roman. It was Chinese, where the court eunuchs control everything. These are super powerful beings who have been castrated, so they no longer are fighting only for the male reproductive privilege of their sons and instead are serving the empire. And you see this in the new sci-fi TV show. But then Asimov realized, oh my God, what have I done? I've reversed the master servant relationship. So his penultimate solution was to say that the robots are guiding us toward humanity reaching its next level, which is called Gaia or Galaxia, an uber mind in which John Lennon's dream comes true. And I hope the rest of you will join me and the world will be as one. Well, everybody becomes one being. And Isaac was starting to realize that that's actually horrific in its own way. So he was floundering around looking for, and he hinted where he was going to go with that, how he was going to restore human dignity and power and maturity in the context that he had made. And Janet Asimov thought that I found what he was hinting at, that I brought things around full circle in Foundation's Triumph. But I leave it to those who want to find out if that's true. In any event, the point is, oh, by the way, it's the same solution as Arthur C. Clarke in Childhood's End. And that is, these were people who expected mushroom clouds on the horizon at any point in time. I did, too. I was in grade school, and we were taught to expect you know, nuclear war at any minute. That's probably why, plus lead poisoning, why we're the way we are. Uh, okay, boomer. The point is that none of these are a solution.
1: That's the end of part one of the interview. I know, what a lady and the tiger ending, right? We're splitting this into two halves to give you some time to catch your breath and not overstretch your download budget. But rest assured, next week, David will pick up where he left off and tell you just what he thinks the solution is. Now you have a week to come up with your own so you can compare notes. We're getting more and more requests from people to appear on the show, often from people who represent them, like an assistant or an agent. Some of the requests have been well thought out, and some of them have been just trying to get publicity. I've got no problem with someone wanting publicity for their company, as long as that's not how they come across, and I've accepted about half the requests I've received. But others have caused me to write a canned response that I've put on our contact form and I thought I'd read part of it to you since it gives a good idea of what our commitment is to you as the listener, and also for anyone who's listening and thinking of pitching a guest. I'll read this fairly fast. We welcome guests who can engage the audience with answers to the questions in our opening prologue and or thought-provoking extensions of the question space. We range over an enormous arena defined by what will be changed by AI or what can inform our evaluation of AI, This has taken us from politics to science fiction, and from robotics to philosophy. We could easily embrace topics as far apart as computer science and theology in the same show. Our listeners are educated, informed, and curious. Think TED Talk audience. They're not grouped into any particular specialty, and so we will not get into anything too narrow. But don't worry about getting too technical. Peter will ask for explanations where they are needed, or provide an introduction and a prologue recorded later. What is most important is to understand that this podcast is not an industry promotion platform and we are not here to provide infomercial space. We really don't want to talk with anyone functioning as a director of sales, marketing, public relations, or social media engagement. Unless that person is primarily an engineer and for some reason wears multiple hats. The hat we want to talk with is the engineer. We are a show for nerds, wonks, and visionaries. Our peer shows are by Azim Azhar, Lex Fridman, and Sam Harris. We are not interested in your company's capitalization, how many of your customers are in the Fortune 100, what awards you've won, or how much your sales are growing. This audience is allergic to selling. We want to know how your technology works. We do not want to hear, here's a bad problem, but don't worry, we solve it with AI as just the label. If your company is using AI to solve a problem for customers, we want to know how that happens. How does AI play a role that could not have been satisfied by business analytics, data visualization, modern user interfaces, or statistical correlation? Have you used supervised learning, reinforcement learning, transformers? How much training data did you need and where did you get it? Did you have issues with privacy, bias, or explainability, and how did you solve them? We may not ask those questions, but someone who doesn't know the answers is unlikely to be the right person for this interview. We want to explore the unique development that you have made, how it contributes to the expansion of AI science, what the experience of engaging with it is like, and how you think it will evolve in five or ten years. We want to explore the social, economic, and policy issues raised by this development, and talk to someone who likes thinking about those issues. If the proscriptions on selling bother you, this is not an engagement you should pursue further. Our experience overwhelmingly shows that when people come on the show for an engaging discussion about technology and its impact, purely for the love of the topic, that's what most encourages listeners to find out more about what they're doing. For examples of interviews with company representatives that demonstrate this, listen to Paolo Prajanian, CEO of Embodied, and Satish Sankapandi, Chief Data Scientist of Orbital Media, and there are links to those episodes. We're always looking for passionate thinkers and hope that you recognize yourself in what we've said we want. Thank you. So there you have an idea of an important aspect of our identity. I've come to learn, this will tell you how naive I was, that there are a lot of shows that exist just to promote one company after another to drive interest and sales, and we are not one of them. We are here to learn and understand things about AI that are useful and interesting, not have our ears bent by someone telling us what we should want. So if you hear me step out of line on that, then you tell me, okay? In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, since we're talking about science fiction anyway, do you remember the scene from 2001 A Space Odyssey, where the astronauts tried to hide their plans from HAL 9000 by talking in one of the extravehicular pods that didn't have a microphone he could listen to? But they didn't realize that he, the AI, had a camera that could see through the pod window and he could read their lips. Somehow he had picked up that talent. How would Hal have learned that, you ask? Well, today, an AI developed by Meta, that's Facebook for those of you not up on the latest renaming, is learning how to read lips. Specifically, their AI called A.V. Hubert, there's another Bert, by the way, if you're counting, there's a whole family of AIs named Bert, is being trained to pull speech from not just audio, but video. Turns out that we use visual cues of how someone's mouth is moving to help us determine what they're saying, so why shouldn't AI have the same benefit? They're not the first. DeepMind trained an AI on thousands of hours of TV show content to translate words with 50% accuracy using only lip reading. This is going to help in deciphering speech happening in noisy environments. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with David Brin, when he'll talk about how to break up oligarchies, how to prevent all-powerful AI, and The Lion King. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters.
0: That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at a i n u dot net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.